What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. In 1619, a ship arrived in Virginia, which of course was then an English colony. The ship carried between 20 and 30 enslaved Africans who were sold to the colonists. That was 400 years ago this year. The New York Times recently launched a major initiative on that anniversary. In their words, it aims to reframe the country's history, understanding 1619 as our true founding and placing the consequences of slavery and the contributions of black Americans at the very center of the story we tell ourselves about who we are. For comment, we turn to Eric Foner. He's taught American history at Columbia for a long time. He's won the Pulitzer Prize, the Bancroft Prize, and the Lincoln Prize for his work, most of which has been about Reconstruction. His most recent book is The Second Founding, How the Civil War and Reconstruction Remade the Constitution. We talked about it here. He's written widely for the New York Times op-ed page and The Nation, where he's a member of the editorial board. Eric, welcome back. Good to talk to you, John. This whole project, I think what's very good about it is that it is popularizing, and I say that positively, not negatively, it is popularizing scholarly findings over the past, let's say, generation, which are not widely known. They're known to scholars. I don't think most historians found much surprising in the 1619 project, but it's not aimed at us. It's enabling people who are readers of the Times and others to sort of learn about how scholarship on American history has changed by putting slavery very close to the center of uh, our national experience rather than seeing it as it used to be in the past as, um, you know, a kind of footnote in the larger story of the expansion of freedom in the United States. Well, at the New York Times, they support their thesis that 1619 is, quote, our true founding with several arguments. I'd like to look at some of the most significant. First, they say, if you want to understand the brutality of American capitalism, you have to start on the slave plantation. That essay was written by Matthew Desmond. What do you think about that? You know, capitalism is brutal wherever it is. And uh, But I think as Karl Marx uh, wrote, you know, uh, capitalism came into the world dripping with blood. And much of that blood was the blood of enslaved people from Africa, not only in the United States, of course, but in the entire Western Hemisphere. So a lot of scholarship has shown the centrality of slavery, particularly the cotton plantation, cotton exports, and cotton financing, uh, the centrality of that to the growth of American capitalism, in the, uh, in the, particularly in the first half of the 19th century. They asked, why doesn't the United States have universal health care, which, of course, all the other countries of the developed world have? And they connect that to policies enacted after the Civil War, which they say are the beginnings of a national health policy 
when smallpox ravaged the South after the Civil War. Of course, this is uh, your uh, your area of scholarly expertise. What's the argument they're making here, and what do you think of it? The smallpox epidemic is one piece of. Uh, by the way, that also comes from recent scholarship. James Downs, a, for, a PhD student of mine, in his book called "Sick from Freedom," is about the uh, health challenges that faced, uh, really, health disaster that faced African Americans. Uh, in the immediate aftermath of slavery and the Civil War. Lying behind that argument is, uh, unfortunately, something which we see at many points in American history, that large numbers of white Americans, it seems, are willing to forego benefits for themselves as long as they are assured that black people won't get anything. In other words, our absence of a national health system is not only based on you know what happened in Reconstruction, but over and over again in the 20th century and into the 21st century, white Americans have opposed national health care partly for fear that the wrong people will benefit from it. That is at the root of much of the opposition to what is called the welfare system, the welfare state. And when a lot of people, uh, not all, of course, but uh, you know, come to support these measures, they're written in a way that keep black people out. So, for example, the Social Security system, when it was put into effect in the 1930s, was designed to exclude blacks. It, it left out the two major categories of employment that black people at that time were engaged in, domestic work in people's homes and um, uh, agricultural labor. Now, of course, there are a lot of white people in agricultural labor, too, but somehow it seemed that uh, it was all right to deprive them as long as you made sure blacks weren't getting anything. So I think one of the key points of this 1619 project is, yes, you find the legacy of slavery and racism in places you might not expect, or you might not even think of looking, but nonetheless, places that affect all Americans, not just uh, African Americans. And another part of the New York Times 1619 project connects our extremely high rate of incarceration and our huge prison industrial complex with slavery. They argue that slavery gave America a fear of black people and a taste for violent punishment. Both still define our criminal justice system. This piece was written by Brian Stevenson. What do you think of that way of connecting 1619 with the rest of American history? Brian Stevenson, of course, is the very important uh, a lawyer and uh, museum designer. I mean, he uh, put together this famous now uh, lynching museum in Alabama, which highlights this particular piece of our history of the the murder of over 4,000 black people uh, from 1880 to the 1960s. Uh, Yeah, I mean, slavery itself is a violent, brutal institution. There's no question about that. And slavery you know, had built into it all sorts of terrible uh, punishments and torture and uh, violent ways of trying to make people work and things like that. But I think Stevenson's piece, and I admire him enormously, also reveals perhaps uh, one of the little, one of the problems with the 1619 project, which I, as I say, I admire the project very much. But the fact is, that actually up to about 1960, there were a heck of a, you know, it it is not a law of nature that only black people are in prison. That's the way it is today. That's the way our criminal justice operates today. In 1960, most people in prison were white people. There's a lot of fear of white criminals also. In other words, 
the legacy of slavery is not the only factor involved in some of the uh, pathologies, really, that the 1619 uh, Project is unearthing. Now, this is a you know magazine section of the New York Times. It's not a giant doctoral dissertation or a tome, a long tome on uh, uh, the history of race. So um, you know you can't do everything, uh, but I do think that in some cases there are other factors at play that uh, would actually expand the analysis if they could be brought um, into the picture without in any way uh, limiting or that is to say neglecting the you know, the impact of slavery and racism on all sorts of aspects of American society. To me, one of the most surprising and provocative arguments was the one by Kevin Cruz, who poses the question, what does a traffic jam in Atlanta have to do with the legacy of slavery? I thought he was able to to show that the answer is quite a lot, actually. What did you think about that? And what is his argument? I thought Cruz's piece was very persuasive because it deals not only with traffic, but but the whole history of racial segregation in housing, how black people are kept out of certain kinds of neighborhoods. And then in the 1940s, 50s, how highway building destroyed some of these black neighborhoods. These highways are there mostly to be enable people to move from all white suburbs into the center of Atlanta. In other words, they're predicated on racially segregated housing. Now, today, it's a little more integrated, the housing around Atlanta, but still, the infrastructure created by residential segregation is still there. And if you actually had a more rational system of housing and community development, you wouldn't have all these highways going in the wrong direction half the time. It makes the point, again, the, the main, one of the main points of this whole project, of how the legacy of slavery, and not only of slavery, of then 100 years of racism and Jim Crow following, still is part of our society, even though in many ways we've moved beyond it, certainly in terms of legal rights, things like that. But um, if you want to understand America today, you need to know this history. I want to look at some of the responses to the project. Of course, the right really went sort of crazy about this. One right-wing magazine said the the authors uh, and supporters of the 1619 Project suggest that we should hate America and hate all its institutions and replace them with others based on diametrically opposed values. And Newt Gingrich, who you may recall, calls himself a historian and actually has taught American history. He has a PhD in history. (laughs) I stand corrected. He went on Fox News and speaking as a PhD historian said, this whole project is a lie. Uh, That's a quote. One of the things he said was it failed to give recognition to white Americans who fought against slavery. What do you make of the whole right wing attack on the 1619 project? Well, yes, Newt uh, called it a lie. By the way, Newt's Ph.D. is in African history, not American history. So Uh, he knows a lot uh, more about the history of the Belgian Congo than he does uh, about American history, even though he had a whole American history TV show at one point. 
you know, this is ridiculous. Uh, people want to go back to a celebratory, you know, uh, feel-good history of the United States. We've debated this for years, as you remember, back in the 90s. Lynn Cheney yeah. was out uh, campaigning against uh, newer views of history. Newt, uh, same thing. The historian uh, Ernest Renan, back in the late 19th century, French historian, said, the historian is the enemy of the nation. But what Renan meant was nations are built on myths. And we yeah. have had deeply held myths. The historian comes along and destroys those myths and actually tells it like it was. Actually, the people I know at the New York Times said they found that there was less uh, extreme reaction against them than they actually might have expected, which might be a sign that actually, as you know, the whole public discourse today is so fragmented that the people like Gingrich uh, or that is say in his political camp, may not have even read this. They're watching Fox News, and uh, they're not even, it's not even registering among people who, um, you know, are on the right wing part of the political spectrum. Yeah, there were complaints, but I think they got much more in the way of favorable reactions by all sorts of people, black, white, and other, uh, who basically just said, you know, I never knew most of this stuff, and I'm very glad to be educated. There was one other line of criticism completely different from Newt Gingrich, and that is that this project is deeply flawed because it neglects Indians, Native Americans. And I noticed that your own American history textbook, Give Me Liberty, begins with Indians, not with uh, slavery. What do you think of that argument? Uh, my answer would be, you can't do everything. It, it's true. Slavery, you know, slavery began among Native Americans. We now know there, there didn't used to be much study of that, but recent scholarship has shown there was a significant amount of Native American uh, slavery in the very early days of colonial settlement, particularly in South Carolina. So, uh, yeah, this did not begin in 1619. And indeed, there was slavery among Native American groups uh, enslaving each other. The history of slavery goes way back. Some people say, you know, actually, another problem with the project is it's too Anglo-centric. Why is 1619 the date? A half century before that, uh, the Spanish were down in uh, St. Augustine, Florida, which also becomes part of the United States, and there was slavery there 50 years before it was introduced in Virginia. But it seems like the assumption here is it's only the English colonies that actually count as the origins of uh, the American nation. So it would have been nice to see something. Yes, it would have been nice to see something about Native Americans. It would have been nice to see something about slavery in the Spanish areas. As I say, you can't do everything. And I do believe they are planning to expand this project, in which case they will bring more in. But, you know, I think, weirdly enough, there's a certain homogenization in this uh, project of African-American people and white people as if they're both homogenous groups. And um, the white group is basically racist. In fact, somewhere in one of the articles, they say, you know, racism is part of the DNA of the United States, which is not an analogy that I like because it's a biological analogy and DNA doesn't change. You can't change your DNA. And uh, to say it's part of the DNA is like throwing up your hands and saying, well, there's nothing to be done about it in that case. And I don't really think that's, necessarily what they want to suggest, but, uh, you know, making it into just a biological element of the whole society, at least the whole white part of the society, is not the right way to look at it historically. 
racism is part of history. Racism has a history. Racism goes up and down. There are periods of intense racism and there are periods of much less racism. The, the job of the historian is to track all that up and down, not just to throw up your hands and say, forget it, racism is here forever, there's nothing to be done. But that is a reflection of the moment we're living in, the post-Obama moment where a lot of people felt when Obama was elected that racism had really been kicked to the side, and now it seems to be back, you know, in the White House and other such places. And that leads to a somewhat pessimistic set of conclusions about the possibilities of change in the United States. Eric Foner, his most recent book is The Second Founding, How the Civil War and Reconstruction Remade the Constitution. Thank you, Eric. This is great. Nice to talk to you, John. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.